everybody. Thanks for coming to hear a little bit more about uh, Amazon Workspaces and migrating desktops to the cloud. I'm Nathan Thomas. I'm the general manager of Amazon Workspaces. Uh, really excited to be here today uh, and uh, going to be joined by a customer of ours, uh, Bridgewater Associates. Ron's going to come up in a little bit and talk about uh, what they've done with Amazon Workspaces and how they've solved some of the challenges we're going to talk about today. Um, so first off, what are we trying to talk about? So how do I get all of my desktops to the cloud? So uh, the question for customers we talk to all the time is, I'm interested in workspaces. I want to start moving some portion of my uh, desktops and laptops over to, uh, to the cloud. I want to start taking advantage of cloud economics and some of the reasons that I've moved my other components into AWS. I want to do it with my desktops. How do I get started? How do I get going? So today we're going to cover some of those ideas. So uh, some of the pieces you're going to have to put in place to begin to make those migrations happen and then some of the ways you're going to operate that uh, in practice. And then Ron's going to talk about how they've done some of those things themselves uh, in, uh, in practice. So before we get started, I do want to make sure everybody knows what a workspace is. So Amazon workspaces are really simply desktops that are running in the cloud. So Windows 7 or Windows 10 running inside of AWS you're streaming the video output from those desktops down to local client devices. You can connect from a wide range of devices. So it could be uh, a Windows PC, it could be a Mac, iOS devices, Android devices. We support Firefox and Chrome browsers. Uh, and our goal is really to have a highly interactive, secure desktop. So your experience when you're on your uh, workspace should be, it looks and feels just like any other Windows machine that you're used to interacting with, very performance focused. Very, very interactive. Of course, all the same basic value propositions for uh, AWS apply. So pay as you go. So pay monthly or pay hourly. Turn it off when you're done. Stop paying. Uh, it's got to be simple to deploy and manage. So go to the console, 15 minutes, launch a workspace. You're up and running. So very, very simple to get going. It's got to be secure. So it's a little easier with a workspace in the sense that you're not putting data on client devices that leave your building every day with all of your intellectual property. All of it lives in the cloud. So that makes it really easy to think about that security model. And then, of course, it's got to be scalable and consistent. So the uh, environment that we've built with Amazon Workspaces is really focused on full virtual machines for every single user. So uh, getting there and hitting our price points has been a, an interesting challenge. But uh, it means that you get dedicated RAM, dedicated memory, CPU, disk, network, Everybody gets the same consistent ex experience of using their desktop every single time, whether you've got one user or 10,000 users. All right, so that's the quick background. Hopefully everybody has some a good idea of what a workspace is. Let's talk a little bit about moving your desktops from on-premises today into the workspaces environment in the cloud. We think about this in terms of three steps or portions of that migration. First off, is the build-out. So you've got to have an environment you can move users into. So how are you going to set that up, all of the pre-configuration components? Migration. So actually then starting to take blocks of users, groups of users, and move them into their workspaces. And then operations. So you've got to have an ongoing process for how you're going to manage these desktops over time and your workspaces environments over time. So we're going to dive into each of these. We're going to try and go into a bit of depth on some of the concepts involved here. And then, as I said, Ron will go into how they've done it specifically at Bridgewater. OK, 
first office build out. So one of the first things you have to think about when deploying Amazon Workspaces is what is your identity store? So who are the users who are going to be logging into these workspaces? You've got to identify them somehow. Uh, so if you're going to issue a workspace to a given user, they have to have some identity you can use. So for us, that's really Active Directory. Our goal when we launched the product was to have it integrate with the existing mechanisms that folks use for managing desktops. And so Active Directory is the primary way this happens in enterprises today. And so it's what we do. There are really three main ways you can do this. Uh, if you want to use a simple AD uh, from the directory services uh, product from AWS, uh, you can do that. And it will simply uh, be bundled in with your workspace for free when you launch it. Uh, that then lets you have a place where you can create users, add users, delete users, uh, and do some basic Active Directory functionality. You can also use Managed AD, which is the more full-featured Microsoft AD uh, solution. It's the same kind of concept, uh, and it is uh, available from Active, uh, I'm sorry, from AWS Directory Services. Or you can do AD Connector, and AD Connector lets you use your existing on-premises AD and then use that as the identity source for your workspaces. So that way, if you've already got AD and you already have all your users identified and created, you're just using that existing one. All the workspaces are domain joined. So when they launch, they join directly to one of those three domain mechanisms. So they show up just like a normal computer object in the domain. Uh, and then anything that you're doing already with the domain, so group policy configuration and application, all of that works and runs inside the workspace. Uh, we do like to call out for people that there can be some evolution uh, to try and drive in GP and group policy uh, application, uh, particularly if you're doing stuff that's really super heavyweight or isn't really applicable to the cloud. It may be a good time to take a look at that GP and decide whether you want to update or evolve that for that time. Okay. So second is authentication. So you've obviously got an identity now, now you need to log in. So where exactly is the password you're gonna put in? So AD creds, that's really the answer, right? You're using the Active Directory username, you're gonna have an AD password. So it's the standard login process for Windows. Um, if you wanna use a second factor, so you wanna use a one-time password, you can use Radius MFA. And so any existing Radius system you're using that's integrated with your AD will work fine. So it just shows up as an extra field during the login procedure. Uh, you can also optionally add client certificates. So if you want to limit access to workspaces from only specific devices, say, for example, devices that you're running mobile device management on or you've got security or posture assessment on, those uh, can be controlled by adding certificates. So then we will validate that you see the certificate when you do the connection from that device. So you can come in and do a couple of other checks there. We look at uh, OS version levels and patch for, or, um, uh, client version levels and some other things. Uh, but you can authenticate effectively using your primary AD mechanisms that you have today. All right, so you've got auth, you've got identity. You need to be able to get to your workspace. So with the workspace's clients are installed on a, a device like this, so a, a Windows laptop or onto a Mac, uh, they need to be able to reach out and connect to the workspace. So uh, there are a couple of ports that need to be open for that. Uh, the protocols that we use for streaming require port 4172 to be open. Uh, that's typically TCP and UDP. Um, if you use the web access client, then port 80 or port 443 uh, can work as well. Uh, and so that's if you're using Chrome or Firefox to connect. So that can be a little easier if you've got really strict security policies on, on port access. Um, 
Do remember that if you're going to use Active Directory Connector to have your AD being joined directly from your on-premises AD, that means that the VPC where you're running Active Directory Connector will need network access into wherever that uh, Active Directory is that you're going to talk to. So you have to think about opening that up. And then finally, the VPC where your workspaces are going to be running, if you want them to have access to your corporate network, you need to set that up, right? So when you launch a workspace, it's going to be running, uh, effectively, you're going to see a, an ENI, an Elastic Network Interface, for your workspace in your VPC or a VPC that you define. Um, that VPC doesn't, by default, have access into your corporate network where your wikis are and your share drives and anything else. So if you want to configure that, you're going to need to make sure you have network access from the VPC. So establish a VPN, set up a direct connect link, whatever mechanism you want, or pull all that stuff into your VPC. If you're hosting it all inside of EC2 already, no trouble as well. Okay. All right, so then image creation. So you've got all of the pieces in place to be able to set up and run workspaces. Most of our customers are gonna take the default images that we provide and modify them in some ways. So install applications they want, set up security configurations, set up backgrounds, whatever it may be. So they need some of those applications and components built into the image so that they can not have to do that every time they launch a new workspace. So launch a workspace and configure it. You really want to ideally kind of have one workspace image per high level use case you're going to come up with. You'd like to not have to maintain an image per customer or per user, you'd like to have some sort of consolidation. Uh, one of the ways we uh, help customers kind of minimize the number of images they have to maintain is by using WAM, or the Workspaces Application Manager. This lets you package applications, and then they get dynamically allocated to users when they set up their first workspace or when they log in. So they actually use the same base image as other people, but then get a different application set deployed to it. Existing tools you have, like SCCM or other mechanisms for app di distribution, also work. But the general call out here would be try and minimize the number of images you have to create and maintain somehow. So when you launch the workspace, modify it, all you do is you go in uh, either through the console or through the APIs, create an image from that workspace. Um, and you can bundle that image that you create with the desired hardware. So uh, when we talk about hardware with workspaces, we really mean the different types of bundles we offer. So we have value, standard, performance, power, and graphics. So you configure your workspace the way you want as an image and then tie it to a, the bundles that you want it to be associated with for launch. And then launch your new workspaces from the bundle. So the goal would be every new user you want to launch, instead of getting the default, gets a customized image that matches your environment. Uh, last here, uh, build out is uh, an apps, apps management. So uh, existing Windows apps work fine. So everything that you normally run on Windows 7 or Windows 10 will run fine on these workspaces because they basically are Windows. Uh, everything should feel natural and look the same. Uh, existing tools like SACM work fine. And then as I mentioned, WAM uh, can package and deploy apps as well. Um, but it's just a call out, you gotta think about What's your ongoing apps management strategy with Workspace? The same way that you would with any other environment. Okay, so now you've built an environment. You've got a VPC configured, it's got network access, you can do Active Directory domain joins, you can launch workspaces from your custom bundles. You're ready to start onboarding users, so you've got to get people moving over. What are we going to do for that? First off is user selection. Think about who you want to move to your new environment. So uh, we don't have very many customers who come in and say, I've got 
100,000 employees and we're all moving over on Tuesday. There's gonna be some selectivity and thought process about moving individual groups. We normally see people start with a proof of concept and opt-in, so that is people who want to move in uh, or find reasons to move in. Uh, generally, they're ad identifying initial wins, right? Uh, common ones we see are consultants, outsourced labor forces, variable workforces, uh, mergers and acquisitions, remote offices, dev and test, just cases where you really need desktops, you need a lot of them fast, you need to span something up quickly, you may not wanna have to go buy laptops or build out a VDI environment, it's easy, it's there, go take advantage of those. Those will be good proof points for you initially to understand any edge cases or, or conditions and learn about operating this environment you've configured. Then, from there, begin to land and expand into other areas. And ultimately, of course, do things like setting up default for new hires and other mechanisms. One of the things to think about as you go through that onboarding process is sizing the workspaces for the users. So you're gonna get every user coming in and telling you they would like the most powerful workspace. I would like power workspaces. It has the most memory, the most RAM. Uh, I'd like all of the wonderful experience of that all the time. Uh, now, of course, reality, there is a cost difference as you have different sizes of workspaces. So you wanna try and optimize for that. And so looking at the groups and users in terms of the memory, the CPU, and the disk that they need can really help you do that cost optimization. Uh, SSM and other third-party tools can really help here. Uh, so SSM is the EC2 uh, system that lets you do analysis on uh, instances that are running in EC2 uh, for memory and disk utilization and a bunch of other metrics. It all runs on tops of uh, workspaces as well. Just go ahead and use that as a direct uh, mechanism like you would manage any other on-premises Windows box. There's a lot of other tools out there for this. Um, effectively, you wanna ultimately try and get some mapping of users or groups of users into bundle types. So this category of users, you know, in marketing or in development or in sales, maps to this category or type of workspace. So standard bundles or uh, performance bundles. Now, I, we're actually really excited to announce this week that coming out in December, you're gonna have the ability to change your bundle type with a reboot. So if you have a running instance that's say a standard, you can go into the console and say, oh, that user complained, they need a little more power, I'm gonna bump them up to a performance, then just go and reboot the workspace, and at that point, they'll get the performance bundle. So a very, very simple way to effectively, you know, give them a hardware upgrade, like giving them a new laptop, but just with a quick reboot, they get the new gear. And so that'll be out in December. All right, data transfer. So you've now moved your people into your workspace. They would like to have the files that they had available to them in that workspace. So uh, the way that we really see customers doing this most of the time is by attaching some sort of a network share, file share, cloud accessible storage device to the environment that they're coming from, moving data into it, and then making that available inside the workspace as well. So Windows shares are really common for this. If you're mounting the Windows share on your existing environment, just mount your Windows share from your workspace. It's all domain joined, it's accessible. So very easy to share files that way. Amazon WorkDocs is actually bundled with workspaces, so you get a 50 gig drive for free as part of the product. So if you want to attach that from both sides. We also just started supporting the Amazon WorkDocs drive, which lets you do that as a file system attachment. So it shows up like a W drive inside the workspace, so it's an easy way to do that. There's a lot of third-party storage solutions here, but just think about what am I telling my users? Are they gonna have the same files that they have on their local laptop when they get to the workspace? If so, how am I making it easy for them to do that? How do I make that a seamless part of the transition? 
All right. So we talked a little bit about how you're going to set up and build out, how you're going to start migrating users. Now you're going to run this fleet of workspaces that you're building. Let's talk about operations. So first off, when you move people in, you want to think about training and communication a little bit. So you want to message the change. So explain the shift in experience. Make sure that they're aware of the shift and how it's coming. So you want to not have this be a big surprise for people. Once you're up and running, you really want to do fleet management the same way that you would with most other AWS services. The whole goal here is that you've turned desktops into something that look a lot more like a server workload. So it's something you can apply the same basic management techniques to. So you've got the AWS console and the APIs. You can do a huge amount of automation on top of that and build a lot of tooling. So you can do all kinds of things with movement of uh, workers around and migration of existing workspaces. So migrate users to bigger and smaller bundles. Evaluate the usage. Look and see whether users are actually connecting or not. Turn off workspaces if you're not using them, those kind of things. Um, we actually have some nice scripting here. Uh, there is a cost optimization script that's a set of Lambda functions based on CloudWatch data from the workspaces that will automatically help you shift workspaces between the monthly mode and the early mode, always on and auto stop, so that they have the opportunity to maximize your cost savings. So whichever of those is cheaper, it'll automatically move it to. That kind of automation you can extend and build on for your specific environment. If you see workspaces with no usage, shut them off. So you can build scripts that detect that case. Look and see if you've had a connection in the last 30 days, turn off the workspace. Monitoring and alarms, same as the server environment, right? So you've got uh, uh, typical CloudWatch metrics around the health of workspaces. Is it up and running? Uh, connection information, connection data. If you want to build alarms and monitoring in CloudWatch, that's pretty simple. Uh, you can also install SSM and other techniques for getting more detailed information, process information, and data out of your workspaces. Again, you don't want to have this laptop that you never give access and have visibility into as an administrator again. This really should be more like a server. You can integrate all of this sort of thing via APIs and do a huge amount of automation, build metrics and portals and monitoring. So very much like the DevOps mentality you'd have for the rest of AWS. One thing we really like to make sure people are clear on is you should monitor the network links and Active Directory for health. So obviously you are now running a workspace and a desktop productivity environment in the cloud. Your end users need to be able to get there. So if they're routing that traffic over your LAN, over your DX links, or you've got connection coming back to your on-premises environment for access via those same links, you need to know if you're having a problem. Same with your Active Directory. So if you can't auth against your AD, you've got a problem. You want to know whether those are up and running. So we definitely encourage people to put some monitoring and alarms in place there. So you've got a huge fleet of running workspaces. <laughs> They need to be kept up to date. They need to be patched. They need to be patch managed. Uh, so all of the windows and other included apps, we uh, patch by default. You can override that. So when you create custom bundles, you can set your own patching policies. Just make sure you're not turning all that stuff off. Make sure you're thinking about Windows patches continuing to run and make sure that you're continuing to patch all of the apps that are in there as well. Uh, pretty critical to have a strategy uh, for updating that. It is really nice with workspaces with uh, both actually always on and auto stop. Uh, they're kind of always available to patch. It's very different than when a laptop, for example, might be offline for days or weeks at a time you can't get access to it to patch. Uh, with uh, always on workspaces, it's always there. With auto stop, there's a maintenance mode where it'll boot and apply patches. So it's a lot easier to stay consistent on patch levels here. 
You should also think about uh, rebuilding bundles with uh, new images regularly. So if you've got customized bundles, you don't want those to get super out of date. Every time you go to boot from them, they're going to suddenly pull a bunch of updates and patches. We do some work to try and defer that so it doesn't hit the user right, right away, but uh, it's still going to happen pretty fast. And so it can get a little cumbersome. So you do want to keep the images up to date. So rebundle from a uh, running workspace to a custom bundle on a frequent basis. And then, of course, it's still a Windows desktop, so do all of the things you normally would do with a Windows desktop for security best practices. So um, you want to make sure you've got all the patches and other things, all of the antivirus and anything else you want to run. And then, of course, it's running in your VPC, so security group configuration, if you want to run all of the traffic for outbound networking through proxies and filtering, all of those same things apply, right? You have routable information about what's coming out of that network. You can do whatever you want. Um, I do say... Make sure you think about how that traffic is routing. If you're routing all of your outbound workspaces traffic down to your on-premises network to hit your web proxies and your on-premises network is, you know, 150 milliseconds away and it's slow, like, you can start to degrade experience. So just think about those traffic flows a little bit. Um, automation integration. So. Uh, it's the cloud, all of this stuff has APIs, all of it's available for you. Think a lot about what could you do to make your life easier. The DevOps culture is one of ultimate laziness, so the less work you can do, the better. Uh, if you have the opportunity, you can uh, automate the creation of new workspaces for users. We have people integrate these into their HR systems and ServiceNow uh, and just simply say when a new user onboards, they get a new workspace, it automatically happens. A lot simpler for everybody involved. Same thing with exits, removing workspaces. Um, again, you have scripting for migrating between always on and auto stop. And of course, there's existing tools that you can integrate with across the board with APIs. So whatever you already use for user management and desktop management, think about ways that you can kind of plug all of these pieces together so that you stop having to do as much help desk work or as much manual work, because it really is more like a server workload now. You do need to think about end user support, though. So you don't want to launch workspaces, and then the first time your users call into your help desk, your help desk goes, I don't know what a workspace is. Uh, so you should think about making sure that you've trained the uh, folks on your support service side so that they know how to deal with it. If they need to reboot a workspace, rebuild a workspace, uh, they need to have some sort of standard operating procedures and documentation. Uh, good idea to add key links for support to the workspaces uh, client or other visible locations where you know that the users will be able to find, here's how I get help if I have any problems here. Um, we don't like to call this out in saying that there's a huge amount of trouble with workspaces compared to uh, other desktops, but just it is a little bit of a different operational model with a desktop. They might just hit the power button or they might have a different uh, physical uh, support desk they go to, but a little different for workspaces. And then finally, one of the big trends we see now is people moving to self-service portals. So that is taking those APIs, building automation that gives the end user the ability to launch workspaces, reboot, rebuild, terminate workspaces. And then of course, as we start being able to uh, add building between different, rebooting between different bundle types or adding storage uh, over time, uh, being able to do all of those actions through a self-service user portal. Uh, so we see customers doing this all over the place, and it's really powerful uh, for them to be able to do that. Uh, so definitely encourage people to take a look at how do you begin to transform your end-user computing environment into something that's a little bit more self-service with these kind of tools that are available to you so that you begin to kind of cut back on the amount of cost and complexity for you. All right. 
So that's the quick overview of the pro progress. We talked about, again, build out, migration, and operations. Uh, I'd like to welcome Ron to the stage. He's going to talk a little bit about how Bridgewater accomplished a lot of these same goals. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Um, so I'm Ron. Uh, so I work for Bridgewater Associates. Uh, Bridgewater is a financial services firm based out of uh, Westport, Connecticut. Um, uh, many would just say we're a hedge fund um, managing approximately $160 billion. Uh, all that really just says that we care a lot about technology and we care a lot about security. Um, we we kind of went down the, this path probably a little bit north of a year ago where um, more than anything we needed to find some new solutions to improve um, overall user experience. Uh, we had a couple other use cases out there as well. Um, we, we had a need to provide a uh, Windows solution for our Macintosh users. We didn't want to go down um, some sort of boot camp path, um, any sort of convoluted Active Directory joining or anything along those lines. Uh, so we were looking for something a little bit more elegant. Um, opportunistically, uh, we were looking to uh, find better ways of doing remote access, right? Um, many of you guys deal with remote access. Uh, not only can the user experience be very poor, but there's a lot of infrastructure that uh, we would rather not manage, we would rather not own. Um, and then I think most of you probably think about this too, like we, we want to be leaner, um, and not leaner necessarily cost savings, uh, but we want to be more effective, right? Uh, we want our people working on things that are impactful to the business, uh, so finding solutions that free up engineering time uh, and support time to actually working on meaningful things was really important for us. So um, how we found our way to workspaces. Uh, so first off, uh, I don't think I have to sell anybody this room on, on, on going to cloud technology, but we, we in general want to uh, veer towards service-based models, right? We don't want to own infrastructure. Um, it's you know, rent before buy, buy before build. That's the mantra. Uh, the company as a whole has been investing in AWS infrastructure for, for a fair amount of time. Uh, so we were really familiar with uh, the general um, AWS constructs. Uh, it had been security vetted. Um, we understood you know, Amazon's practices and, and how they maintain all that environment. Um, so for, for our team, the kind of end, end user desktop engineering team, it was kind of easy for us to slot in. Uh, and then some of what Nathan covered was also kind of a big deal for us. Like, in essence, like the, you're, you're managing Windows desktops, right? All of the same tools, or most of the same tools, most of the same constructs that, that you already use in your Windows environment, um, you will use managing workspaces if you choose, right? And so that made our barrier to entry that much lower. Um, throughout the entire process, uh, Amazon has been incredibly helpful. Um, I call our TAMs uh, probably way more than I should. Uh, ask them a bunch of dumb questions over and over again, um, and they answer all of them, very patient. Uh, and beyond that, um, as we give them feedback, they actually genuinely care. Uh, the feedback actually has resulted in changes to their products over time, um, and you know, I fully expect that uh, to continue. Um, finally, we started with a very, very quick and dirty POC. Uh, we gave it to a handful of end users, across a couple different verticals in our in our organization, uh, and all of them were instantly in love. Um, so we had an idea. We had an idea that we were on the right path. 
So um, as I said, most of the constructs that you're going to use with workspaces are things that you're already familiar with your, your Windows environment. So I'm not going to really focus on that. Uh, I'm going to focus on things that, are, uh, that were at least difficult for us um, as we got started on the project. So I'm, I, I have more of a typical infrastructure, IT infrastructure engineering background, right? Like I understand data centers. Um, I understand server clusters. I understand RAID arrays, right? Like so this was my first real, you know, in-depth project into Amazon infrastructure. And so these are the parts that once we got these nailed down, the rest of it was kind of just rinse and repeat from, from the lessons we had already learned building out our Windows environment. Um, so one of the things you really start with, you, you have to understand what sort of availability you're looking at, right? So multi-region, single region, right? Um, obviously, everybody's different, global organizations, large, um, large just national organizations, um, geographically dispersed, like you're going to have different requirements for that sort of thing. Um, within each region, you have uh, availability zones. Um, and I think most of you are probably familiar with that construct. One thing to keep in mind is, one, workspaces is not available in all regions, um, uh, although that number is growing. Uh, but within a region that supports workspaces, not all availability zones uh, might support workspaces. So what you actually have to do um, when you're building out your VPC is figure out where you're putting those, those subnets and make sure that those subnets actually support workspaces. Otherwise, you're just going to destroy the whole VPC and, and have to rebuild it. Um, not that, that I've done that before. Um, so let's kind of get into the kind of the, the, the meat of this, right? So um, as you start, right, you, you, you got your VPC construct, right? And your VPC connects into your on-prem environment, however you guys want to do that, direct connect, VPN. Um, you have to start with your subnet planning, right? Uh, first thing I'll say is plan for growth. Um, when we got into this, uh, we actually didn't um, have a good grasp of the number of users that were really, really going to benefit from workspaces and even the use cases, the potential use cases, a lot of them didn't become clear to us until we really got into it. Um, fortunately for us, we sized our environment very large, large enough to handle our organization a couple times over, so it, it didn't really cause us a problem. Um, but when you, when you uh, create your subnets, those subnets are fixed, they're there, so you do not get to change these things once, once they're in place. And especially once you start loading workspaces into them, if you find that um, you have somehow miscalculated you either live with it or you tear the thing down. Um, so right now, this, this diagram is pretty simple, right? So we, we, I wanted to keep this as clean as possible. Um, just a, a basic construct of um, two different availability zones in a single VPC. Um, and then you have an AD connector, right? So your AD connector uh, basically is the thing that allows your workspaces to join your Active Directory. It allows um, authentication to take place. Um, with your on-prem environment. An AD connector is essentially an EC2 instance, right? Um, it lives, um, it requires two availability zones, right? So you have two distinct subnets. Um, and, and it's also two, two zones max, right? So as you start to think about that, um, one, it's going to take an IP address uh, in, in each of those subnets, so keep that in mind as you're sizing. Uh, but also, um, you start to see things like this, right? Um, your workspace is attached to the AD connector that you have. 
uh, that AD connector and workspace are permanently tied together. Um, you create an additional AD connector down the line, you don't get to move that workspace between AD connectors, right? That also means what happens when you create your workspaces, um, the workspaces are automatically load balanced between your two, your two different availability zones, right? So over time, you're going to with half of your workspaces in one and half in another. So if you think about that, though, if one of your availability zones becomes unavailable, right, half of your workspaces are unavailable, um, which is one of the cases why uh, I personally would recommend multiple AD connectors, multiple availability zones, so that uh, you're, you're actually reducing that risk and that exposure there. Um, let's see. So let's talk um, a little bit more about the, the AD connectors themselves. So your AD connector... Uh, is where a lot of your authentication configuration happens. Um, so uh, some of the things that, that um, Nathan mentioned, so if you want to do certificate-based authentication, that, that configuration happens on the AD connector itself. So for instance, you might have an MDM. Uh, that MDM um, applies unique certificates to your devices, uh, and then you can go into your AD connector and say, I would only allow Windows devices with my certificate to authenticate. Right? All other clients are not allowed. Right? And you have the optionality um, also with Mac OS. Um, within the AD connector is also where you configure uh, MFA, um, so your existing radius environment. Uh, so in addition to those sorts of things, as you start to think about uh, what you're going to need over time, the reality is you're going to have lots of AD connectors. Right? Um, just at a bare minimum, you need a production AD connector and some sort of QA and testing AD connector. Um, you don't want to be making changes to your certificate authentication on your prod AD connector, then everybody loses connectivity uh, to their workspaces. Like the workspaces themselves will be fine, just no one will be able to use them. Um, beyond that, like you should also set up a pure sandbox somewhere else. We have a separate account um, where we basically replicated uh, our uh, environment where we can go in and experiment at will, um, play with AD connector constructs, play, play with um, different authentication constructs, um, different GPO constructs, or whatever they might be, without any worry about impacting our production environment. Um, then from there, we can move over to our QA on prod environment, uh, and then into production. Um, the other thing that, um, uh, that AD connectors give you are just optionality for your types of users. All right, so um, for instance, um, one of the things to consider is that each AD connector drops uh, the computer object into a single OU, right? That's it. Um, you can leave it there, you can move it if you want to, but it's always going to go into that OU. So one of the options you might want to, to consider are, say, an AD connector per department, right? Here's the accounting AD connector goes into the AD um, to the uh, OU for your accounting department, uh, and then maybe has a specific set of authentication requirements for that department. I only want my accounting people to access this thing from one of my managed devices. Or I don't care. My accounting people can access from anywhere in the world. I don't really care. Or you can even lock this down, and in some instances we've done this, where it's like you cannot authenticate from outside. Right? This is RDP only from our on-prem network. Right, so I block all client access to those particular things. 
Um, you might create an AD connector for your consultants, right? Uh, I think a lot of us deal with kind of contingent labor, uh, and you might want to segregate that for whatever reason. You want to drop them into their own subnet. You want to apply different security groups to them. You want to uh, have different levels of monitoring over there because you pay attention to them more or less. Um, let's see. A couple of other things, like uh, just kind of weird random sorts of things. Uh, the workspaces themselves, uh, once they're built, the IP address that you get with that workspace stays, stays with that workspace until that workspace is terminated, right? Um, I spent a, a lot of time trying to figure out how to assign a static IP address to a workspace. Don't do that. Um, essentially, uh, those things persist on reboots. They persist um, whenever, uh, on rebuilds. Uh, they only go away when the device is terminated. Let's see. So for us, like, these were like, kind of the biggest things that, that we thought about. Um, we kind of planned for, uh, we knew we were going to need multiple AD connectors for multiple types of environments and multiple users. Data classification is one of the big ones. Um, but then we also had an idea of like, all right, so let's say we even need more segregation than that. Uh, so at that point, you can add, you can add VPCs, uh, but realistically, like, try to keep it simple. Um, we like having one VPC for all of our workspaces. It's just cleaner. It's easier for us to pay attention to uh, and manage. Like over time, like we, we think we might, but we really don't want to. Um, so let's move on. So what are we what are we seeing um, in general? One of the things that, that we really like uh, there is now like a much better segregation between uh, kind of the the work side of things and then the personal side of things. So if you're looking at uh, enabling some sort of BYOD environment um, or just more flexibility in how people connect, uh, you have this pane of glass kind of just drops into your, your production environment. Uh, and then you can just have this completely separate environment on that client endpoint that those two things never talk to each other. Uh, and that has all sorts of benefits. Like um, even for us, there are separate use cases where that particular client endpoint is really intended for some sort of business function, but that business function should not mix with the next one. So a lower, say, a, a less secure data classification um, on a developer computer, and then we have a high security application that you can only access from the workspace, right? But we can do that now from, from the same endpoint. So that's really, really helpful for us. Um, Reduced operational overhead, uh, some of the things Nathan was talking about, the ability to scale up a ton of these really fast um, uh, in ways that we just haven't been able to before. Uh, the lighter weight devices, if we're actually um, uh, providing a device to the end user, these devices are lighter weight themselves, so not, like, not with one or our thick images on it. Um, they provision faster, uh, they're easier to maintain. Um, we can drop them in the mail and they're ready to go. Or if we, uh, in some instance, let people use their own devices, you don't have to do anything, right? They get a registration code, download the client, and they're up and running. Um, so, you know, by the time you get a request to the time this person is up and running, it could be a couple of hours, right? Um, and then the, the single best endorsement I can give for workspaces is that um, probably for the first time in my career, which is only about 16, 18 years now, whatever it is, uh, people are lining up. Like I, I've heard other, other talks, talk to the Amazon guys when, uh, 
when we first started exploring this, and I, I call bullshit. Like, uh, it's, uh, you know, how many times have you heard these sorts of things from, from marketing departments and salesmen or whatever? Uh, but very early on, um, I started getting floods of emails. Um, and I still have, uh, the wave is getting larger. Um, even, even some of our kind of tougher to please users uh, that have historically, let's just say, been underserved uh, by some of our solutions uh, are ecstatic, right? Um, we've given it to several and then they're saying, what, when can I give this to the rest of my team? When can I give this to the rest of my department? Why can't I have it yesterday, right? And, and we can't go fast enough for them. Um, and that's the truth. And we're really excited about workspaces. Um, it's changed the way I work. I've been working on it continuously now for probably six straight months. Um, several guys from my team are in the audience today. Uh, all of us, you know, would not go back to, to the way we worked before. So um, that's all I have. Happy to stick around and answer questions you might have. Um, I think we stand up here and take questions if, uh, if yep. anybody likes. Thanks a lot, Ron. All right, so a couple of quick call-outs. Um, uh, if you guys want to get started with Workspaces at all, there is a, a free tier available, uh, so you can always go and try it out for free uh, for a month. Uh, there should have been a flyer on a lot of the seats as well. Uh, we've got a partnership with uh, Samsung and Ingram. Uh, they do this cool uh, phone, the Samsung S8, uh, with a DeX docking station you can connect to Workspaces from. Uh, they're giving away uh, some free access as well. Um, and then there are a few other sessions around workspaces and some chalk talks, so if you want to uh, dive deeper, uh, feel free. And then with that, I think we want to take questions. We've got a, a mic here. I'm going to move it out here. So if people can come up to the mic if you've got a question. Any questions? All right, well, we'll be around here on the side of the stage if people have questions afterwards, and we can happy to take those in person. Thanks, everyone.